This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness. He has a very extensive bio, the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, the award-winning podcast host, just speaking into the atmosphere, Mr. Blue Tech Verified himself, Dr. Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? You can find me speaking into the ether at jamartisby.substack.com. How you feeling today, bro? How you doing today? Black man, have you healed? Healing. I am healing. <laughs> <laughs> you had to be there. You had to listen, listen to Listen, no, episodes. I appreciate everybody's responses to the Heal Black it's Man. It's been insane. I've yes, been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope you're, it's sparking for you a healing journey or at least healing conversations. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. healing is not an overnight thing. It doesn't a happen journey. in a neat, nice little line. It is complicated and asynchronous and difficult. And so hopefully you feel that. But today we're going to take another step in our overall healing journey by talking about one of Jamar's books. He's a two-time bestselling <laughs> author. No, nah, but you, one of your books in How to Fight Racism, you talk about something I think is so important. And I actually texted you after I read this. And I remember, I remember when it. I was reading the book, I texted you about racial identity development and what you were talking about, the chart and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I texted you about how helpful I, and freeing I thought that was going to be for so many different people. You probably don't remember that, but I remember <laughs> it's that. It's coming back to me as you I remember where yes. I was. I was in the garage. <laughs> I was reading the book. Now, but tell us a little bit about this and why this is important for even black listeners and people of color to do as well. Yeah. So we're talking about racial identity development. This is something that is fairly common in social psychology circles and, and things of that nature. Obviously, I didn't come up with it. I'm learning from the experts on this, but I'll tell you how it got on my radar. I was in college. And I was visiting my sister, who is older than I am. She was living in Chicago at the time. I was visiting her, and I noticed this book on the shelf that she had, a book that our listeners are probably very familiar with. It was Beverly Daniel Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Uh, can, and we, can we pause here and just say... <laughs> That book is serious. It is serious. That book is for real. That was one of the key books yes. that got me down this. It, it really, what helped me in my personal development and my justice thinking is it reframed a lot of what I had that's assumed. Right. That's right. It was perfect at paradigm shifting. That's right. So if you have not read that book, that's a book. I think they've done like the 20th. Yeah, they did a 20th anniversary. anniversary edition. You have to get that book. Why yeah. are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? It is so helpful. And the, the subtitle is and other conversations about race. <laughs> it's a mouthful, um, but it is chock full of great content. And it was I, I, I discovered this book and read it right at the critical time in my life when in that 18 to 22 era of life, when you are first out of the house, right? And starting to define or redefine yourself 
on your own terms, not in just relation to your parents or your family, exploring different things. And it was so helpful to me. If I give a little bit of backstory. Please, yeah. So I went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, go Irish, ended up having a phenomenal experience there, but it wasn't always the case. Hmm. It started out very difficult for me for at least the first year and a half for a lot of different reasons, not least of which black Americans at the undergraduate level were a minuscule Hmm. part of the student body. By my calculations, we were about three to four percent. That's more than I would have even thought it would be. That's more than you thought it would but be. But seriously, that's like because it, it doesn't seem like the typical place for black people to decide. Definitely to go. not. Because of partly is the religion angle. Like right, exactly. Catholicism is really reason. big. Yeah. And so the the biggest population of non white people is Latinos and Latinas, because Catholicism is big in their culture and their circles. So but black people and so that amounts to a couple hundred people across campus, mm. most of whom were athletes. Mm. And, you know. Of course. Despite the guns that you see here. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Heel black the, man, heel <laughs> black man. I was not a Division One athlete. So that meant that even the black people that were there, they all had their own sort of thing going on. Their own, because they were all athletes and they shared that together. So I was the only black guy on my floor in the dorm. I remember all these microaggressions, like I've talked about this before, but I used to shave my head bald and white guys would just come up and rub my head. And I remember mm. feeling like that's not okay right, on a, on, right. on a, like a visceral level, but not being able to intellectually explain what was so bad about it mm-hmm. because I didn't have the, the background in race and racial understanding that I do now. And there were all kinds of things like that. Like my siblings would talk about stuff that was happening in the news or stuff that happened to them that was racist and they could identify it as racist. But I was like, but what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. And mind you, I'm coming from a very racially and ethnically diverse environment. Right. Like my right, right. high school was over 50 percent people of Latin American descent. My my friend group was everybody you could think of. Right. And so it's not that it was completely f- out of my experience mm-hmm. thinking about racism, but on a on a on a deeper level, I didn't know. So all that to say, when I found Beverly Daniel Tatum's book and in it, she talks about racial identity development it was like a light bulb went on. Yeah. Yeah. Because we can, what it does is help us locate ourselves in terms of where we are in our racial identity development. It's so interesting you bring that up, especially talking about athletes. I remember I was watching this uh, professional athletes, pretty famous, not just in uh, sports talk and commentary, but also in uh, the racial conversation world. I don't know him personally, but he said that the first time that he really noticed race was in an NFL locker room or in a football. He was like, oh, it's the first time I really even knew this was a thing. And and I was like, wow, that's a totally different experience, Hmm. you know, than most of us. And so it's really helpful that you're mentioning this because even as we talk about these things on the podcast, it's helpful for people to have something to be able to do to try to cultivate and develop where they are in this conversation. Because right. we are not in the same place as everyone else. Right. And everyone else is not in the same place as us. So That's even okay. as we make these statements and proclaim these things, I think it's really important for us yeah. to know where we are and what stage of the journey we're on 
and also to be able to assess what's happened to us and why we think the way that we think. That's right. If there's one thing that I'm most concerned with when it comes to black Christians as they think and talk about race, it's not understanding why we believe the things that we believe. Mm. And this is not just doctrinal, but this is personal, societal, mm. sociological. What a part of what as a part of our experience shaped who we are now. And what about the relationships that we've had and the upbringing that we had that molded and morphed our identities into what exactly. they are now, rather than thinking that, oh, we just, we thought this because it's logical or it's true or it's, it's biblical. No, it's also cultural. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a part of that cultural formation where we find um, a lot of the reason for and the foundation for our beliefs. And this is where social sciences are helpful, right? Like we, we're, we're so afraid of them. In I the mean, church. that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like we're coming from context where there's this like arm's length reaction to things like sociology and psychology and social psychology, but they can, I mean, you have people spending the, 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 the majority of their professional lives studying these dynamics. And why wouldn't we access that information yeah, and absolutely. learn from it. So that's where this comes from. Um, it began racial identity development, the, the, the steps or the stages we're about to share originated with uh, a, a, a black social scientist named William Cross in the mm -hmm. 1970s. Yeah, yeah. And I love the name. The original name was the theory, theory of nigrescence. <laughs> <laughs> So I the, thought you were going to name the original theory. I was like, that theory is it's, it's strange. I don't like that. It don't sound right to me. Uh, well, he's talking about the, <laughs> the, the, the theory of being becoming Negro or mm -hmm, becoming mm -hmm. black in, in the nomenclature of the day. And of course, this is in sort of uh, the black power era, kind of within the, the penumbra or the shadow of the civil rights movement. Oh, that boy said <laughs> penumbra. Wow. See, Tyler, Tyler okay, always do okay, it. Okay, wow. <laughs> Where earlier you said, I let this slide. You said asynchronous. In, in, nah, yeah, you that did. Ain't yeah, penumbra, yeah, yeah, yeah. The number is different. Uh huh. So asynchronous. We connected to something that's. But see, when I said it that's the first a flex, time, man. You, yeah, that's a flex. I appreciate that's, <laughs> that's us, yo. Um, you a doctor for real? I gotta so, give it up to you. Cross was uh, doing his research in this era where there was now a a sort of positive and proactive approach to understanding blackness, right? Yeah, like yeah. it was in this era where black um, intellectuals felt freer to, I mean, they're actually creating new disciplines like black yes. power studies and whatnot. So it comes from that, but it's evolved constantly since then. And so what I shared in How to Fight Racism, I also share it in the Young Readers Edition, mm -hmm. And it's adapted language for you. That, but that one might be even more helpful. But, but basically, there are uh, five stages, and I'll go through each of those. But in each stage, you're 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 at a different level of understanding, and it yeah. looks different at each stage. So let me pause here and just say, number one, you should pick up How to Fight Racism as a book. And for some reason, you're listening to the podcast, you don't have that as a book. I have tons of questions. Um, <laughs> we'll talk later. But I think you should definitely have the book. But then secondarily, it's probably helpful and wise for you to pull out a sheet of paper, a pen, uh, a journal. And you can even pause this podcast and come back and be we'll prepared to, yeah, be prepared to write some things down. And be prepared to reflect on some things. I think part of the reason why we struggle sometimes is not just the lack of information, but a lack of reflection. 
And so we need some time to reflect upon how we're feeling, why we're feeling, what we're feeling, and then also to process uh, some of the things and the stages that Jamar is going to share with us. So I, I stalled enough for you to find your place. <laughs> <laughs> I had it. I had it. I wanted to I'm see kidding, where I'm, I'm kidding. Um, so I'm just walk through the stages and with each stage, I'm going to say how it manifests. So stage one, conformity. Stage two, dissonance and appreciating. Stage three, resistance and immersion. Stage four, introspection. And stage five, integrative awareness. Mm. Now, those are fancy words. Yeah. Talk stage, about that conformity, man. Stage one, conformity. Um, this is really interesting. So you will sort of say or think phrases such as, don't call me black or Mexican or Latino or whatever, or, or Korean, I'm an American. Hmm. Like I'm not, hmm. I'm not, in, I'm just an American. Don't highlight my race or ethnicity. Wow. I want to be just like, in, like everyone else and included. Wow. Um, phrases like we're all just people treat me as the individual I am. Why do they, these minority groups only stick to themselves? Hmm. What's happening is your attitude towards self, you've absorbed these images, beliefs, values of the dominant group. Right. So you sort of just kind of uncritically accept whatever the dominant culture says about right. race and ethnicity. Typically, in our society, that's a colorblind approach. Right. right? So you, you want to diminish, not highlight race or ethnicity. And I think it's important to acknowledge what you're saying is that is to feel some sort of belonging. That's right. That's within right. Within the dominant group. That's right. And so that's very interesting to talk about belonging in that context of conformity and also in the context of why people say certain things. And yeah. And again, we're, we're I'm touching on a lot of motivations. Right. And <laughs> what's the hidden motive for why you're thinking these things, believing these things, saying these things. And then to hear, oh, yeah, you kind of want to be a part, don't you? And this is where we mistake unity and uniformity. Hmm. So the way Ooh. to achieve acceptance you is to downplay differences <laughs> and to make it make us make it uniform. Make it yeah. so we're all the same. That's good. And pretend as if we don't see these but differences. That's stage one. That's stage one that a lot of us are in in our early childhood development. But then typically, if you're a person of color, if you're a black person, something happens that makes it undeniable that race does indeed matter, that you can't just say we're all the same. Right. So stage two, dissonance and appreciating, uh, characterized by phrases like, my color wasn't supposed to matter, but hmm. clearly it does matter to them after all, mm -hmm. to the dominant group. Mm -hmm. Or they looking at somebody who's a little bit more developed in terms of their racial identity, and they're, they're saying, well, she's different. How could she be proud of being black. Mm. Like, what is she understanding about blackness mm. that makes her sort of confident about it? And their attitudes are, you can have a positive or negative encounter at this stage with race. Most of us are used to a negative encounter. But if you have a positive encounter, you're surprised by um, differences. And you're like, oh, well, maybe it can be good. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can learn to embrace this. Typically, it's a negative encounter. And you feel devalued, rejected, you're unsure of your own identity and community. Earlier beliefs about equality, liberty, and justice for all are shaken. Mm. 
So at this stage, you become open to reconsidering the significance of race. It's so interesting. I was in a conversation, uh, I want to say probably three, four years ago, and was part of a church group. And I was part of probably three, I think it might have been three or four uh, black men that were kind of brought into a room. And, you know, the white pastor was talking about race and asking questions and and so it was so interesting because of different people. You could kind of tell where everybody was in their different stages. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, one of my good friends, Max, he was in there with me. He's a listener to the podcast. And um, Max and I were talking. I was talking. I mean, it was different people talking. And then one of the other uh, black guys, he texted me afterwards. And I could tell he was coming to like some realizations. Mm-hmm. He texted me. He's like, yeah, I would love to get together with you because I'm, I'm realizing some things. Like, I didn't know what you were saying is possible. Wow. You know, I didn't know this was possible. And so it was a, like that moment of, oh, so I can be yep. authentically myself, unashamedly who I am, have immeasurably deep faith and understand how those things integrate and then interpret society through that lens. And it was the first time I think he had seen that in an explanatory way. Mm in front of someone in authority who was white. Mm. And I think that's what got him. Uh-huh. Was, in that oh, setting. It's a, yeah. It's a, it's a white authority figure. Mm. And he wasn't my authority technically, but he was somebody who was- An authority You know, figure. an authority yeah. figure. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like he had that moment of, well, what's making you able to do what? And I feel yeah. like a lot of us actually have found podcasts like Pass the Mic out of that. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we found it in, in people and everything where we ask the question, oh, I'm in this space and they seem to be operating differently than how I would operate in yep. this space. Yep. And so it leads to some sort of appreciation and then exactly. deeper Exactly. I, I mean, that's how I sort of gravitated toward one of my mentors, Dr. Bill Pinnell, mm-hmm. who's in his 90s, right? But he's writing in 1968, My Friend the Enemy, basically a letter to white evangelicals in book form about all the stuff they're getting wrong on race. And this is 1968. <laughs> like, this is not... It's not play play. Th- yeah. th- this is not common at this point. And I'm like, oh, wow, you can do that. And he was fourth. He didn't put any punches. And yet he was, you know, deeply faithful, still committed to some sort of bridge building and all that stuff. So, so much of this is about finding our freedom. That's powerful. And your freedom gives permission to other people to be free. Yes. And so often we just, we need that vision. It's almost, it gives us permission. Yeah. We didn't think we had it before. Yeah. We did, but we, uh, until we see it, like you yeah. said, embodied, we didn't think it was for us. Well, let's take a break here because we're already two stages in. We got three <laughs> more stages. I'll give you some time to take a deep breath, catch your breath. We'll be right back here on Pass the Mic. Pastor 
Hey everybody, this is Tyler. This is Dr. Jamar Tisby. And we are excited that you're listening to this episode of Pastor Mike, but let me encourage you to support us. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Pastor Mike. And for just $1 an episode. Just a dollar? Now that's the bare minimum. That's four quarters. But if you want to go higher, okay, 5, 10, higher. 15, that's 20, right. 25, whatever it is, that will keep this show going and keep the high quality that hopefully you enjoy. So thank you for listening, but you can take it to the next level. Patreon.com slash Pass the mic. We appreciate you. So we are two stages into racial identity development here on Pass the Mic. And Jamar, you're leading us through this process again. If you have not purchased How to Fight Racism, I just have so many questions for why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> But again, that's cool. No shame in your game. You know, I you're good. In, that, you're good in our hood as long as you purchase the book. But here's the thing. Um, stage three. Stage okay, three. So we talked about stage one's conformity. Stage two is dissonance and appreciating. Stage three is resistance and immersion. So this is the stage where you start saying black is beautiful. This mm. is the stage where you saying <laughs> the the phrase they give in the example is not anything I would use, but they said, whites are so uptight. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, we got to dock, we got to dock five points on that. We got to give people a 10% just, discount on the book just for that. Just repeating what the social scientists have said. So, so this is where you're sort of exploring your blackness mm. and you're appreciating it. Mm. You're, you're seeing it as something not to downplay or flatten out, but something that you can actually embrace, but it's also sort of cage stage. Like, like it's, yo, I'm black, y'all. I'm black, y'all. And I'm blackity black. And I'm yeah, black, CB4, y'all. CB4, CB4 you know? black. Yeah, yeah they, 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 they might not they get that They don't know that. They don't know CB4. <laughs> they don't know CB4. It's very sort of in-group focused. So you are diving in to mm -hmm. everything black, black culture, black music, black food, and most importantly, black people. So you're mm -hmm. sort of clothing your, closing yourself off. It's like we talked about before, where as black men, to really define ourselves, we have to get out of proximity of whiteness and figure out who we are for ourselves yes. and in and of, a, of ourselves in a sense, right? Um, so it is that stage of separation that allows you to explore your racial and cultural identity. Yeah. And I think it's also important for people. This stage is often judged harshly as well. Yes. Because it's a, a deep dive and an embrace. Yeah. And people don't realize the importance of understanding that to course correct something that has been hidden from you for sometimes decades or your entire life, you really have to immerse. Yeah. You really have there's to a dive lot to deep. Learn. There's a lot to learn and there's a pressure to learn it all by a certain point. Right. And so I think we, we have a, a light amount of grace for the people who we seem to be, you know, deeming as doing too much mm. <laughs> when really it's probably not. It might be a stage in their development. It, it might not be too much. Stage. It might just be their necessary development. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so this I think it's also very dangerous for, this is why I'm always very careful when people connect me to black voices and black people mm. when they feel like I'm going to balance them. As like the more yeah, reasonable. As like or, the more reasonable wow. or more contained and mature. Yeah, and yeah. 
I'm not here to balance blackness. Wow. <laughs> That's not why I'm here. I'm That's here to let deep. you explore where you where you land. Yeah. And it expresses itself differently with exactly. different people. Different people. Some people do it privately. Some people do yeah. it publicly. Some people go on Facebook rants. Some people. Right. And it seems right, like right. people exactly. can't handle exactly. that. But it's part of development. Right. And if we don't know that, then we're going to be more prone to judge that harshly. The next stage, stage four, is introspection. Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to figure out, okay, what does all this black stuff mean for me? How do I incorporate it with my uniqueness and my personality? So it's characterized by say it strong, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, but I've more incorporated it into my everyday being. So this new identity is integrated into the self-concept and affirmed a new sense of security results in what is sort of transitioning in this phase is you're more willing to have relationships with non-black people right. at this point. Right. Because you're more yeah. secure in your own yeah. blackness and your own identity. Yeah. So at first you got to, ah, yeah, like, know, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be around you. Exactly. But then now I'm able to actually incorporate you into my life healthily. Yeah. You know, and create margin that says, out of the overflow of me knowing who I am, now I can rightfully have a better interaction, healthier interaction, and for me, probably safer interaction. That's right. That's right. As a result of that. I'm more comfortable bringing my full self into any relationship mm. and so that I can have relationships with lots of different kinds of people. And I've also incorporated what my interpretation of blackness right. is, not just what I've read or somebody told me or what the culture says is black. I'm saying, no, this is this is how it incorporates. How, this is how it melds with who I am hmm. and how I'm uniquely and individually made, right? Yeah, that's helpful. And then stage five is integrative awareness. And so this is a stage characterized by attitudes like, I can learn from Latinos and whites and Asians and whomever. It is, you, you have reached this quote-unquote emissary stage. You see your own achievements as advancing the entire group that you have some sort of responsibility and attachment to the entire group. You're prepared to cross and transcend group boundaries. Hmm. You're willing to act as a spokesperson and advocate. You're prepared to function more effectively in diverse settings. Hmm. So at this stage, you can you you you're at a stage where you can learn from and take pieces and parts from all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. So your blackness is not threatened if you learn from somebody of a different race or ethnicity, right. if right. you uh, adopt cultural practices from a different culture of yours, and you can maneuver in virtually any sort of cultural context as your full black self and not bash people over the head with right, it, right. nor hide it. It's like, it's almost like, it's almost like meek, meekness in the biblical sense of the word, where you have power, but you choose when and when not to use it. Hmm. So I can, I can have the argument. I can assert myself. Or I can choose not to. I know when to deploy it and when not. And I can also learn from you. I can adopt different habits and practices. I can revise my understanding of self. And that is seen as sort of the highest level of development because you're secure in who you are, but you're also secure in becoming more of who you are and mm. learning from other mm. people. That's really helpful. So these are the five stages. How should people interact with these five stages? Should you 
should you see them as as points of because I can already tell people who are obsessed with performance would be like I need to get to stage five <laughs> right to, right because should you see that or so I, I I would be interested to see what actual social social scientists say I've been thinking about this and sort of working through this for about 20 years now and my own personal just Jamar Tisby's opinion on this is that this is cyclical Mm-hmm. And that yeah. in nearly every season of life, you're going to sort of go through stages once again, but in different contexts. So mm-hmm. when I was in college, I was going through this stage as a person first sort of kind of out on his own, right? Trying to define myself for the first time. And then when I any any new sort of situation, so when I moved to the Delta, I had to reevaluate, mm-hmm. right? Like because I thought well, I'm black going down to this predominantly black area. We all black. That's cool. Hmm. But then I had to have these encounters mainly through my students that said, oh, there's different sort of expressions of blackness. And I don't fit their understanding of what it means to be black. So what does that mean about me? And then comes this immersion phase where I am literally looking into black history Hmm. and trying to figure out, you know, what, what led up to this moment, how does a place like the Delta form in terms of its culture? What is my place in it? And then, so you get my point. Where Absolutely. That every, I just, I think you're never done. It's not like you ever reach stage five and you're, you're cool for yeah. life. Yeah. I think we're constantly put into contexts and situations and cultures that challenge us to redefine ourselves anew. And then this model comes in helpful because doesn't have to be so chaotic, mm. right? You can understand that while I felt much more self-assured in this context, I feel a little bit off balance over here, but what's happening is I'm I'm actually just going through these stages right. all over again. And this is not something to be afraid of, but it's something to embrace. Precisely. Yeah. And I should mention that that in the evolution of this theory of racial identity development, Social scientists have come up with models for white people, which I include in the book. They've come up with models for every sort of distinct racial or ethnic group. They've come up even with uh, racial identity development models for multiracial people Hmm. and biracial people. So um, you can mostly Google search these kinds of things. Definitely check out Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And one more point on this. So many people accuse us of segregation. Right, right. Because we say we need our own black spaces like past the mic, like the witness. When racial identity development models tell us that is a necessary and healthy part of forming your identity. Yeah. Not necessarily so that you can stay clustered within your own racial, ethnic or cultural group. But that you would actually have a healthy sense of self to go back out and interact yes. with people who are different, who come from different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities. So it's that's actually really necessary. Powerful. Yeah, that's powerful and important for people to hear as they process where they are, what's happening, and then also the responses to what's happening around them. Precisely. So remain secure in yourself, remain secure in your process, and not allow what people think and judge you to be or or doing to short circuit what? needs to happen in your identity development. So you are in process. Again, as we all pick are. up the book, How to Fight Racism. This is chapter three, right? Chapter three. 
See how <laughs> yeah, it's Tyler you know like what I'm saying? You know knowledge. what I'm saying? Yes, I appreciate you reading. Yes. No, nah, this is really, it's really, really helpful. And I would encourage you to go ahead and purchase that, pick that up and go through this process with someone, with a group of people. Absolutely. Open it up and hopefully it'll lead you to greater freedom in who God has created you to be. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.